Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. The show driven by you, everything that you send in via Twitter with my at Marshall Pruitt handle when I put out the call for questions. The Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page when the same call for question goes up. And also on the Reddit IndyCar page, all brought to you by Cooper Tires with us now for three years on the show. Pretty awesome. Thank you, Cooper Tires. Also, the Justice Brothers, you're number two. Also, dear friends, I think if I'm counting time-wise, Toronto Motorsports, three years? Maybe four? I don't know. A good long while. They've been here, it feels like, since day one. Good old Toronto Motorsports. And also, Bell Racing Helmets USA with us since 2018. So what does all that mean? means that we're really quadruple fortunate to have not only great partners, but also those who love what we do, see value in what we do, who appreciate all of you for listening and contributing and creating a rather fun, hopefully informative at times, silly, somewhat frequently, environment for us as IndyCar fans to talk about the sport that we love. If this is your first time listening, I am Marshall Pruitt. I do this for a living. This is what I do. I'm a reporter. I report on IndyCar. What do you know? And before I reported on it, I worked in it. I was a mechanic and an engineer and a team manager and just a general idiot. But thankfully, someone, after realizing that I was a bit of a sham on the team side, said, you know what? Maybe you kind of sort of have the bare minimum of skills to write about it and talk about it and fart your thoughts into a microphone at least once a week. And so what do we call that? Well, we call that our Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. What I lovingly refer to as my unpolished turd. Why? Why do I call it that? Well, no real editing involved here. All the mistakes, all the gaffes, all the verbal typos, all the words I make up, all the times I read your questions and fumble and have to start again, I just keep it. Why? Well, it's a very painfully accurate representation of who I am and all my flaws. And I figure, you know, we try and make our guest show every week. Ed Carpenter being the newest, his first appearance coming up here on the Weekend Indy Car. We try and make that a little polished, right? Because people, you know, there's a reason for sponsors to listen to that, their sponsors and whatnot. You try and give them a good product here. It's not that I don't want to give you a good product. I just hope that if you've been here long enough, you realize that, you know, it's more of a family type thing. And uh, we get things wrong. We make mistakes. And we just live with it. So that is your week in IndyCar listener Q&A show. I'm staring at a Samuel Smith's nut brown ale. It is not massive, but it is really nice. I've opened it, but yet to consume it for those who think I might already be drunk. No. Could I be there by the end of the show? I'd hope not off of a single beer, but it does have a fairly decent alcohol content. I believe All right, 5% alcohol. I take all that back. It's a pint. It's a beautiful pint. Um, traditional British brewery. I'm told here made with well water. I guess that's better than sink water or toilet water. So haven't had a beer during the taping of a listener Q&A for a little while, and so it's time. Why? Well, yet again, it's Tuesday evening at 721, yet to have dinner, 
My dear wife is listening to trap music, OT Genesis, for those looking for a new soundtrack. And it's just time to go and see how far we can get tonight. I will probably have to continue this tomorrow because you all have sent in a lot of questions, which I greatly appreciate. Last little bit of business before we get to your questions as I take a sip. A fine job, Mr. Smith. I actually know two Sam Smiths, one who's been in sports car racing, now Formula E forever. The other is a colleague of mine from Road and Track, who is one of the finest writers about automobiles I've come across. Neither of them, though, make a quality beer, so feels like I know a third one now. A little bit of business that we do every week before we kick off your questions here. As we look back, thanks to TorontoMotorsports.com, purveyors of fine motor racing memorabilia, hats, T-shirts, models, uh, just all kinds of great stuff. Stickers, including selling all of the stuff with my name on it from all of our various shows. And we look back to the previous week's episode, find the person who sent in the question who received the most likes on our Marshall Pruitt Podcast Facebook page, Facebook page alone and give that person stuff. So Chris Graham, your question for James Hinchcliffe, really appreciative of Hinch trusting you all to come on last week and speak for the first time since things went bad with spam. He came on, Chris sent in a question of as someone who is typically very active on traditional and social media. How has this period of forced quiet change how you want to interact with fans in traditional media in the future. So your question, Chris, got a whole bunch of likes, which means I need you to send me a direct message with your email address, because with that email address, I will connect you with torontomotorsports.com. They will say, what do you want? And again, might be a t-shirt, stickers, mug, could be all, who knows? They'll send you some stuff. All for just being a part of what we do here. Part of this little family. That's it's that simple. So, I don't know who's going to win next week, but we'll take a look and see. And finally, this is your show. So, if you love the questions, great. If not, i got to do a better job of, of trying to solicit better questions. So, Chris, send me that DM. Send me that email address. We'll get you hooked up. And now, let's get rolling. Let's just... Let's do it. We're going to roll. Oh, by the way, Tony Kanon, his announcement's coming here on Thursday as for what he's doing this year. Some of you have asked, and out of respect to dear Tony, who I have known since 1996. He and I met for the first time at Long Beach when I was a, I don't even know what I was, assistant engineer, something like that in Indy Lights. His first year here in the States in Indy Lights, met there known each other since and he's a really really good friend so what's the announcement that's for tony to say tony to tell uh but just wanted to mention that because that was a question somewhat recently hey when are we going to hear news well we've had charlie kimball announced we're going to have tony announce what he is or isn't doing on thursday and then hopefully the other two drivers involved in that will also be confirmed or something so there you go all right, let's go to Joshua Ponce. Says Marshall Ferrucci is set to drive the 18 car for Dale Coin Racing. Who is going to drive the 19 now? Well, that would be Spain's Alex Palou. 
How do I know that? Why do I know that? Well, they announced that. Uh, and I know you in a little follow something to this question, Josh. said, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. I kept this here just to mention that I spent, I don't know, 20-ish minutes on the phone today with Alex for the first time. So got to know him at least by telephone. We'll have that interview in, I don't know, a couple days from now, maybe early next week, something. Turn that into a catching up with episode here. Those are our kind of short interviewish type shows. Fun conversation. I like where the kid's head is at. Great to hear that IndyCar is something he has really wanted to do. The biggest surprise, and I mean it, he's apparently been a fan and listener to our show. So, (laughs) who'd have thunk? So, that'll be coming up here soon. But yeah, it will be Alex Palou with Santino having been confirmed, what, last week, I think, the worst-kept secret in IndyCar. As our cat, Rocky, jumps up, as he always does when I record right in front of me. Hey, pal. Yeah. And he always kind of puts his ass in my face, which I don't know what that means. But apparently in the cat kingdom, I think he's owning owning me, something like that. Let's go to Kyle Ray. It says, MP, can you expand it all on your article, Time for a Rethink on Hybridization? He says, where are things currently with IndyCar on this? Where do you, hashtag me personally, which is the official hashtag of the Marshall Pro Podcast, Hashtag me personally, where do you see this going? Does Roger Penske's ownership change anything at all with hybridization? He closes by saying all the best to you and Mrs. Pruitt. Thanks, Kyle. So for those that didn't read that, it was something that I filed with a suggested title along the lines of a time for a rethink on racing technology. You may or may not know that it has been a an eon since I actually posted stories on any of my clients' websites, much less wrote headlines or did any of that. So the headline I will just share here, Kyle, wasn't really what I had in mind because it wasn't meant to just focus on hybridization, but that's what it ended up being. And in reference to what all's going on here in IndyCar, it certainly fits the topic I know for a fact, because I've had the conversation with one of the two manufacturers, and I need to confirm here shortly if uh, that manufacturer is good with me putting a finer point on who they are and who I was speaking with. They have been very vocal about, okay, hybridization, electrification in IndyCar, okay, we're we're okay we'll do that we we have a greater need for that now we can justify it but not if it's going to be spec not if it's going to be off the shelf not if it's going to be something that nobody can touch where it it's honestly no different than a mirror or the throttle pedal or <laughs> pick you know uh, a rear wing bolted on don't touch it, can't personalize it, can't hashtag me personally it, just it is no different than a set of tires or a wheel or a bolt. Just stick it in, don't ask any questions, use it as instructed, done. That manufacturer said if that's what they want or if that's what IndyCar thinks, they're going to have 
some issues here because that doesn't meet our objectives. If you might wonder, Kyle, well, hold on. The manufacturers don't run the series, right? Uh, this IndyCar belongs to someone else. They write the rules. Manufacturers are invited to participate or not participate. Who are they to dictate? Uh, no argument there. It's all true, all factual. But there's also the practical aspect of, and what if nobody shows up with this new formula that you've come up with? Because their marketing department, their R&D department, the two places that traditionally allocate funds for something like this say, yeah, the formula sounds cool, but it holds no value to us. At least for what this manufacturer. Uh, sorry, needed more beer. That's the way my voice tells me it starts to crack. At least from this manufacturer's perspective, Kyle. They want to see something that they can play with. And at least as how it was presented to me, it wasn't crazy. It wasn't, we just want open everything. And we're going to spend a zillion trillion dollars, blow up the sport, blow up the budgets. Wasn't presented like that. It was more along the lines of, got to give us something. Got to give us a way to individualize this kinetic energy recovery system. In the same way, you allow us to individualize our current 2.2-liter twin-turbo V6 engines, and in this new formula, the 2.4-liter twin-turbo V6s. Those motors are not spec. Honda and Chevrolet, Chevrolet and Honda, they build them slightly different, tune them in different ways. They're just conceptual differences that take place And as we've seen throughout this formula that debuted in 2012, there have been years where Chevy kicks the living crap out of Honda. Of late, Honda's kicked the crap out of Chevy. Sometimes, uh, actually most of the time, we've had Chevy winning the manufacturer's championship. But we've also seen Honda do some pretty darn good winning at the Indy 500. There's times, Kyle, where, again, we've seen, oh, if we're going to a street course, whew, boy, this one manufacturer is holding the dominant hand this year based on the development they were allowed to do during the offseason. Slightly different for the other manufacturer. So that might be the place to put the mindset with IndyCar right now, Kyle. Is hybridization coming? I think so. I don't think there's any real way for that to go backwards or for that to stop. Well, it could, but I think that it's going to happen. But in order for it to happen with manufacturer buy-in, there's going to need to be some degree of customization allowed that fits the mindset and approach that you see from those manufacturers with their internal combustion engines. Uh, Obviously, going full electric, we think, could be the future hybridization we'll see which how that fits in terms of priority for road cars with the two current manufacturers and any more that show up but i I do think that there's just something really smart here kyle whether it's allowing whether all the componentry is the same right here's the -the off-the-shelf hybrid units but the software is totally open 
or, you know, the control side, what again, whether how it's deployed or how things are harvested, just ways in which manufacturers can individualize those systems. That I think is where we're going to have to end up. If there's going to be peace between the series and the manufacturers who are going to bear the absolute brunt of the costs to introduce these and develop these obviously in concert with the engines that they are working harmoniously with. So while Chevy and Honda don't own the series, they are putting in a frightening amount of money to be here to offer engines to compete, to support. And in this area where IndyCar is saying, hey, we're developing this thing that you guys didn't want before but are kind of saying you do now, since they're going to have to spend the vast majority of money to integrate those things. I think you have to listen to them. If one or at least one is saying, got to give us a bone here. So it's not truly off the shelf spec. Can't touch it. Cause I don't know if we can push that through our marketing departments or R and D department. Let's go to eleven six seventy one, If possible, new me, if possible, new engine manufacturers continue to balk on the V6 Turbo for 2022 and beyond for the engine regulations, is there a possibility that it could be opened up to allow different engine types if they could be reasonably balanced? Hashtag bring back the Turbo V8. Oh, you used a bad word here, 11671. Balanced, as in performance balance, as in balance of performance, as in the BOPness of things. Uh... Could, yes, as always. Could, sure. Would, no. Uh, IndyCar is absolutely in a place today, today, with these rules where they want to keep things from being as least adventurous as possible. And so what I just mentioned here in the topic that came in from Kyle, I think that's going to require some pretty heavy adjustments. Oh, we can't just say it's, don't touch it, bolt it in and shut up. That mentality of allowing people to play with things a little bit, that's going to be a hard thing to swallow, but they have to swallow it. Going the thousand miles beyond that of could we allow different engine types and then balance them? I think for this formula, I think that's going to be a stretch. I can't think of a way where that would be allowed. Uh, Could that change for the next engine formula? I think very much so. And that's because this arriving in 2022 being for five years. So that's what 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. Get to 2027. As I hear ambulances or police coming to get us outside. If we think about what would be coming, if they do indeed stick to the five-year formula, which never happens, but if they were to do that, we have to ask ourselves, where would the auto industry be in 2027 with what it is selling and or wanting to develop and sell on the road? Could that then put IndyCar in a place where, hey, it's going to be another spec to, you know, automatic this displacement this many cylinders this many turbos the v angle is this the center of gravity is you know again there's you can there's some personality the manufacturers can build in but it's more restrictive than the old days 
Do I think that's going to fly in 2027? Absolutely not. So while I love the bring the turbo V8 hashtag back, uh, I mean, look, having grown up in the Cosworth and whatever else DFX era, uh, I'm raising my hand. I wish we could have those back right now. Not going backwards, not happening. Uh, but where I do think we need to start fixing our expectations is when this upcoming engine formula starts to near the end. I don't know if IndyCar can just say, hey, it's going to be an internal combustion engine, this size, this, that. I don't know if that's going to be what's on the road primarily or the marketing initiative of those who are playing in the series. So that, frankly, is a place where we might have to see balancing if they decide to balance or if they just decide to honor competition, say, hey, this is the maximum power that you have to work with, whether it is internal combustion, whether it is electric, whether it is hydrogen, whether it is uh, warp cannon, who knows? I don't know. But hey, this is the the same target you all have to hit. Work it out. That's when I think that might happen. Uh, Let's go to our pal Philip Schmitz. Marshall, I had this thought while watching the Rolex 24 and some old NASCAR races. A week or so ago, another listener asked <clears throat> about the cooling of the drivers with the addition of the aero screen. If the helmet itself isn't being hit by moving air at speed, why not have a hose that connects to the top of the helmet? Have the hose connect from the helmet to a tube that goes behind the driver. Then that tube goes through the front of the car to a vent. Um, well, I would say, dear Philip, I would strongly encourage on a daily basis maybe just the morning visit racer.com because this exact topic has been written about ad nauseum by a guy who looks like and sounds like an awful lot like me going back a couple months of aero screen testing cooling problems methods tried and while it isn't a hose connected to a duct at the front uh, this exact situation with top of the helmet duck NASCAR style connected to a hose is exactly what IndyCar is doing. So would just, again, encourage you to stay close to what we do on racer.com because this has exactly been going on for a couple months now. Let's go to possibly the best screen name we are going to come across in this episode. And this is from Reddit and the fine participant who goes by the name casual underscore flatulence. Uh, I do appreciate the casual addition to that. That's a great modifier. Um, Maybe compared to professional flatulence or intentional, uh, again, planned. I'm not sure. Casual, you're winning on that one. Who asks, with the introduction of the aero screen, has this modified any minimum standard for driver extrication time? Along the same thought, how has it impacted the ability for the driver to escape in the event of coming to arrest inverted? Hashtag for me personally, it appears it could be a nasty situation where something like Simona De Silvestro's accident to happen again, though I think the benefits of the design outweigh the possibility. So this question's been asked a couple 
hundred times, and that I don't say that in a negative way towards you, Mr. and Mrs. Casual underscore flatulence. I mention that because it is a common and constant concern, which I think is pretty cool to know that, you know, IndyCar fans really, truly want to hear and want to know, like, hey, this doesn't make a whole lot of sense visually how this would work out in a positive way. The first rounds of those questions that I saw on that topic. All right, so you just basically covered everything up to almost the top of the roll hoop for the driver. What happens if they have a huge crash and come to rest upside down? How do you get the driver out then? Or how does the driver get out then? Graham Rahal was the first to pose that, or I'm sorry, to respond to that, that I think publicly, and said, we can't get out as it is. Like, you know, if the car is truly upside down, I don't mean on the side a little bit, but, you know, if we're talking really seriously upside down, there's no room for us to get out. So the aero screen is not changing anything. If the car is really upside down and on fire, it's not like pre-aero screen we were good and could get out. So what we have now is not taking a situation from good to bad. It is taking a situation from the same place to the same place, unchanged. Now, I guess we would have to add to this that in the Simona-like scenario where she, the car was truly not, you know, flat, upside down, just <laughs> perfectly balanced, get, uh, whether it's a ruler or some sort of level, put it on the bottom of the car as it's facing the sky and see that the bubble is right in the middle. Right, that wasn't what happened. Um, believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe that was also with the previous chassis, the IR08. And if I'm wrong, then I apologize. But I seem to recall that was the IR08. But regardless, not the DW12. But uh, in most instances, the car is going to be a little bit sideways, a little bit leaned, a little bit something. And in that situation, you know, the the. The air quotes issue here is with drivers and how they get into the car. You'll notice that with with or without the aero screen, they slide down into the car. They do not go straight down. They go down, then they rotate their entire upper torso, either left or right. It's a bit like putting a key in a lock. And then once they get beneath the helmet surround, which is pretty thick and padded, then they rotate back with their arm, with their shoulders basically uh, flush across the back of the seat. So that's an important thing. Hey, the car just crashed. Do I undo my belt and pop right out? No, absolutely not. What is involved is either A, reaching over and trying to unclip and undisconnect the helmets around, take that off, throw it out, then get out or basically <clears throat> undo the belts, rotate their upper torso almost 90 degrees, get their shoulders out and above the helmet surround, uh, and then go the rest of the way of getting out. So again, I don't know if this, it's not meant to sound like an excuse. It's just explaining the reality. The driver crashes, goes kind of sort of upside down at a significant angle, 
undoing those belts with or without the aero screen doesn't mean they're popping straight out. There is some jostling and adjusting, uh, and adjusting, adjusting and jostling that they have to do to slide out to begin with. So there's automatically a little bit of a delay. In the event of a serious holy cow type crash, uh, I would say that in those scenarios, there is an expectation among the drivers that the first responders from the AMR safety team are going to be the ones to get there. And if they need the car to be tilted over on its side, whatever, there's going to be human intervention. But I'll just take this back quickly to the opening premise here. Drivers right now, there's no expectation of being able to get out on their own without the aero screen. If the car is truly upside down and on fire, there's just not an aperture big enough to slide through to do that. So worst case scenario to date through the 2019 season has involved safety crew getting there to help. Let's go to Joseki 100. And I love this question as I take another sip of this fine Samuel Smith beer. And I'll have another one, Joseki. Thank you, by the way, for sending in questions every week. On the good old Reddit group, it says, MP, do you think IndyCar owners are having a look at Kamui Kobayashi? He showed a lot of talent in Formula One, but was sidelined because of circumstances out of his control, a.k.a. no money. And he immediately became a fan favorite in the WC with Toyota, also showing incredible speed in setting the overall Le Mans track record. He's now also enjoying great success with Wayne Taylor at Daytona and once again showing amazing speed. I really hope to see him at Indy one day, but I have to assume his total link is limiting his options to only Chevy teams. Gotta admit, I hadn't really thought of this one, Joe Secchi, and I feel dumb because I should, because it's kind of my job. Yeah, I... This guy's really... Re, I don't know if reclaimed. Carved out a place of being particularly special since he joined the Toyota LMP1 hybrid WEC program. And knowing that, again, as you mentioned, he's a Toyota guy. Yeah, indeed. He <laughs> Honda, believe it or not, might not be too welcoming. But also knowing that he's won two Rolex 24s in a row for Cadillac, part of the GM racing family, Chevy racing family. I think anyone wanting to work with Kamui and IndyCar provided Toyota would allow, I think Chevrolet would love that idea. What I don't know, and what I should ask him next time I have a chance to interact with him, is if IndyCar interests him at all. I could not tell you, Joseki, what the Toyota WC program pays. I don't imagine he's getting rich, but I also don't imagine that he's griping about how much he's getting paid. I don't know what he might earn in IndyCar. And if we're talking about a top team, you know, he can earn a couple million a year. So that I'm guessing might be more or similar to his Toyota income, but he's also doing his specialty road racing. Would he care about ovals trying to master and understand Richmond, Iowa gateway and so on? I don't know, but I do know, and this is a great recognition on your part. When we talk about, hey, so there's kind of a limited pool in IndyCar. You know, Dixon's going to retire at some point. Power is not too far away. 
How long is Pagano going to be here? Hunter Ray, you know, we could Canon, we could name four or five, maybe six. We could go, all right, you know, there, there's now a limited window of how much longer they're going to be here. Who might replace them? We know that there's a lot of pups, the Askews and the Awards and the Herdas and so on, the VKs. We know that there's a lot of young talent. There's always a question, though, of like who, you know, in terms of gunslingers, we might bolt in that we aren't used to seeing. That's a great recognition about Kobayashi. I think the place he is at in his life and career would be perfect for it. Um, <laughs> just share this because that's what we do here. So back when his Formula One career had kind of fallen through, Ferrari, I think, was working with him, testing and simulator-ish type stuff, but not a race seat, obviously. Uh, he really was only finding work in the WEC in their GT class, the GTE Pro class. And we're just talking talent, you know, way below this guy's capabilities. I'd never met him. Uh, he, they were here for the uh, COTA Lone Star Le Mans race. So my friend Fiona Miller introduced me to him and just, hey, wanted to, you know, just a little five-minute, three-minute interview, just a little something story about Kobayashi getting a run here in GT cars in America, just a little bit of a fish out of water thing, but for a guy who demonstrated insane talent. I put that interview among two or three that stand out and only two or three that stand out from my entire career on the media side, where if there was no one else around he would have been left in a heap in the corner. Just a complete asshole. And I don't mean lost in translation, mannerisms, you know, an inability for us to communicate. I mean, disrespect like I've almost never received. And it's not like anyone owes me respect. I'm just talking basic human-to-human stuff. Uh, Guy couldn't be bothered to answer any questions. More or less refused to look up. He kind of looked up at me with, like, one eye, looked back, went back to his phone, actually spent the couple of minutes just looking away, like, intentionally, and just kind of grunting and being a total dick. So where this is a little bit amusing is... It's not like I just walked up on the guy. He's sitting in the back of the garage between sessions. And the person who introduced me to him, Fiona Miller, was the head press delegate for the WEC, right? So she, on top of being one of the world's most awesome human beings, like she's the official person in charge of media, the drivers, the people who actually come and report. If she shows up and says, hey, driver, I have a member of the media who would like to interview you. Would you make a few moments available? And you say yes. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe you do. Uh, instead, he didn't. Uh, and so I just walked away like, man, I'd, seriously, I'd just love to knock that guy out. Such an asshole. And I've interviewed him once or twice since then. You know, this is. Uh, Toyota, Weck, Wayne Taylor era when everything's going good for him. 
and he's been perfectly nice. So all I can do is put that down to him just having a bad day. I can't think of any circumstances from that day. Joe Secchi was like, oh, the car blew up or, you know, so, but who knows, you know, maybe his dog got sick. I get, I don't know. You never know. But it was just one of those weird things where like, wow. So I've actually, I mean, I don't get to see him that often, but next time I see him, I'll mention you. I, I will never forget. I'll never forget you, Kobayashi. But coming back to the real stuff here, other than me just popping off and being an idiot, that guy would be a oh great idea. And I need to ask some more people about that. I mean, I need to find out from him if he gives a fart and if he would and Toyota would allow. I think that guy jumps to the top of the list for any team interested in a road and street course driver. Or if the guy does have any desire to do a full season, maybe if he wanted to try ovals to give him a shot, because he has, he stands out as frighteningly talented. So great question. Uh, let's see. I believe Joe Secchi also sent this in along with Mike Matt 5150 on a completely unrelated question. What's going on with Carlin? The season starts soon. With preseason testing, we haven't had a single word about any car. Uh, that's a, I was speaking with someone from the series about this today, and we both remarked the same thing. No idea. I don't know how to say this without sounding like a jerk, but it's not that often where I or my colleague Robin Miller have no clue as to what a team is doing. We've written about some options. Could Max Chilton be back? We don't know. We hope. We like Max. He's, you know, uh, when things align, that guy's pretty darn quick. We know that Sete Kamara is someone else who we're hoping is going to land in a seat. We know that Sergei Sorotkin is trying to get in. Could he be one? There's someone else we're not thinking of or two people we're not thinking of. Don't know. Could R.C. Enerson continue the relationship there? Don't know. Hope so. Yeah. To your point, both of your points, it is January 28th. Cars will be on track uh, two Tuesdays from now. And we're about to have the puzzle filled for Foyt. We're hoping Carlin's going to be filling it in here soon. And beyond that, there's really not much else to figure out. Who's going to be in the Dragon Speed car at the, what, five races following St. Pete? Don't know. We'll find out, but... Yeah, this one's a bit curious, and I would just say from a practicality standpoint, if they had everything lined up, we would know about it. There's no reason to sit on their plans that I can think of this late into the game. When I did speak with Stephanie Carlin a couple of weeks ago, she did mention, we're going to announce it before spring training. So great. So we're on the clock. Uh, I just don't know exactly what we're going to hear so it's kind of fun actually uh when you know what's beneath the wrapping almost all the time when christmas shows up i mean i guess you feel like all right i've done some good sleuthery but uh sometimes maybe it's cool to be a little bit surprised nathan derover says i have a question that occurred to me during the rolex 24 i remember ben hanley and gp2 in 2008 in the super league formula in 2010 I sort of forgot about him, 
until he joined Dragon Speed in 2016. I looked up his career details and driver database, and it looks like he left racing cars altogether for five years and just raced carts. This is a crazy career trajectory, and there has to be a story there. Do you happen to know it? I know a little bit of it, Nathan, uh, and I feel like I've forgotten too much of it, so that's yet again on me. As I recall... Things just did not continue the way he had wanted or needed. The funding wasn't there for him to keep doing his thing, and so it was a lot of karting. It was a whole bunch of karting, uh, as you mentioned there. But the other thing that he did, which uh, I think really stood out, is despite not having GP2, 3, you name it type drives, he did get picked up by Pirelli, and was doing their GP2, GP3 tire testing. And I don't want to say that was throughout this entire five-ish year window, but I do recall that, you know, the guy is good enough at what he does for them to say, okay, we need you to help here. And that was actually something he did quite a bit. So hence, you wouldn't see that in terms of race results, but in terms of staying sharp and driving and doing things in fast cars and making them better, that's what he was doing, which I know attracted Dragon Speed to, oh, yeah, what happened to that guy? Oh, oh, he's been doing that. Oh, well, maybe this is a guy whose career deserves a little bit of a jump start. And so cool that they did a couple of races last year together in IndyCar. Ben will be back for St. Pete, and I assume he, he'll probably do the majority of the races for them. The six races are going to do this year, Nathan, but I don't know how many. And, uh Yeah. I don't know if Ben is meant to be a long-term IndyCar guy. I don't know if that's, you know, I think he might have found a really good spot here being Dragon Speed's go-to sports car guy, the full-season teammate for folks. IndyCar, not sure. Not sure if they're going to want to try and start developing some newer, younger talent or what as they aspire to go full-time here in 2021. Go to our pal Jim Kaiser, who says, Scheduling takes this week's haiku center stage. Indie guys did good. In the Rolex 24, winter testing next. (laughs) Thanks, as always, Jim, for sending in our weekly haiku, something which I believe we can boast, because you should boast if you have haiku. I don't think any other IndyCar listener Q&A show has weekly haiku, but we do, and that's because we have you, Jim. Uh, we're going to go to easy D121595, which I assume is December 15th, 1995. And if not, tell me what it is. Will spring training be streamed online like it was last year? The answer to that question is, I think so. I don't know for a fact, but I think we're going to have something like that. We'll need to check in, though. So don't be afraid to throw that one back in because I do need to find out because I am not anticipating being able to be there so i need to be able to follow along like y'all and so i gotta get that answered uh, i'm gonna go to Stuart Arith, who says marshall thanks for reading my first ever question a few weeks ago on the listener q and a this is more of a uk based question with every formula or with formula e losing every tv platform it had in the uk and it lasting no more than one season on any tv network uh, it says original is ITV, then dropped to a subsidiary station, then Channel 5, then again dropped to another subsidiary. Now being on BBC iPlayer, an online-only video service. Wow. 
Stewart says IndyCar is broadcast on the UK's biggest motorsports channel, Sky Sports F1, and will be for several more seasons. Says, how is it that this TV deal came about uh, and one that Formula E would kill for? Said, was it Alonzo Mania? Uh, was it as, what is it that has gotten IndyCar this great TV deal here in the UK? Um, oh, well, this is kind. You also mentioned great podcast, been a great listener for me while going through a very rough time. Caring for a loved one. Says, it takes my mind off things for a few hours a week. Thank you again. Oh, it's really sweet, Stuart. Knowing that uh, many of you are going through a variety of hardships, whether it's family or just on the hashtag me personally level, that's a thing that I forget about all the time, that silly little shows like this and others can actually take you somewhere else for an hour or two. So thanks, man. That's really kind. What I would say is not everybody reacted to this being a great deal when this happened overarching answer Stuart, is in the long-standing indycar and abc slash espn deal espn international handled all of indycar's international distribution and so that's why the deal in canada was really good and in latin america was again not perfect but i think generally pretty darn good all of a sudden without ESPN and ABC, knowing that IndyCar went full-time with NBC for the 2019 season uh, in a multi-year deal, it had to start negotiating its own international rights one by one by one. That's how it got to what it got to. Do I know exactly on the UK side how it got to Sky Sports F1? No, I don't. But I do know that there was a genuine need to come up with something because it no longer had a deal. And if you like it, and hopefully more of our brothers and sisters in the UK like it, well, you all might be a little bit (laughs) in the minority. Um, Because it seems like I hear more complaints about folks on the international IndyCar viewing topic who had things they loved before and really want them back and are bummed that they don't. So uh, if that's working for you, Stuart, uh, then that's pretty awesome. All right, I'm going to take one or just a couple more quickly here, and then I'm going to say farewell for the evening, and I will be back to pick this up tomorrow. Paul Trahan, MP, since we're entering a new era of IndyCar, is it time to re-record I Am Mindy? And who'd you hire to do it? Oh, well, yes, because this song fashioned by Gene Simmons, uh, it must never die. I mean, this is IndyCar's heritage, right? we got to preserve it. It's certainly ripe for re-recording. Um, I would say that one of my favorite bands, and I've only started listening to them in the last, I don't know, maybe two years or whatever. My pal Nate Siebens from IMSA turned me on to them. Alter Bridge. Um, that seems like a really shitty song that if it was passed through the Mark Tremonti guitar, the Miles Kennedy voice and guitar, even though the song itself is the hottest of hot garbage, I have to believe that if we tried to move it from being a decades-long embarrassment for IndyCar 
to something where it actually kind of rocks out, even if the lyrics are just dumpster fiery. I think Alter Bridge could do this properly. Um, yeah, so that's who I'd go with. Kevin Kerner, MP have heard from other podcasts and discussion boards that Zach Veach is vulnerable of losing his seat at Andretti Autosport because of his poor 2019 season. I don't buy it. He has a loyal sponsor, and though he did struggle last year, he's still a very talented kid and a great personality. Hashtag me personally. I don't see Andretti showing him the door after this year, though I really do hope he has a better showing every race this year. What says you? Well, as I enjoy more Samuel Smith. So when he signed his deal, it was and is a three-year deal. So Michael Andretti, by contract, is not capable of throwing him out. This is a different thing, if you recall what happened to our French fry Sebastian Bourdais of his contract not being honored, and also James Hinchcliffe and his standing down. Those were two paid athletes. Call them elective hires by the team. Doesn't change any of the shoddy behavior wherever it took place, but those were elective hires. Zach Veach found a sponsor, one of the richest sponsorship deals that we believe in recent years, and brought that and handed it to Michael Andretti, who said, great, three-year deal, locked into the car, you have, through your sponsor, paid for it. So anybody suggesting he could, air quote, lose his seat in 2020? Um, there are some basic facts that might have been missed in those assertions. His contract deal, I am confident in saying, includes some sort of words along the lines of, if we are paying you money, from these sponsors, I am driving. And I know nothing uh, to suggest that Gainbridge has not, Group 1001, that they have not paid. So whether Zach was first or last last year, he's in the pretty awesome position of, it doesn't matter. Where the last portion of the question, could you see him showing him the door at the end of the year? I could, unless he and Gainbridge slash Group 1001, and I'm not sure which name is the one specifically that is doing the the writing of checks. I know that they have been working on negotiating to try and do an extension so that he can be there for more years. Assuming all that happens, I would say that knowing Michael's absolute desire to grow the team and make it bigger and more powerful and knowing that, the massively lucrative Volkswagen Global Rally Cross ARX Rally Cross program that Andretti ran for many, many years that has gone away, that's not a good thing. So just talking practicality here, Kev, while there might be a harder edge applied to one of the other drivers in the team where they're being hired to drive and the team has found sponsors to pay for that. Therefore the team rightfully has a big say in who sits in that car since they're doing the work, the work to pay for it. 
not really the scenario here. Zach found through connections through his pastor an amazing sponsor that has become part of the Indy 500, Gainbridge, presented by Gainbridge. What I'm right? This is some serious embedded type relationship stuff. So whether Zach is first or last, yeah, it doesn't really matter. The deal is they pay money, he drives a car, end of statement. Depending on how negotiations go, though, for those entities to stay and pay for more years, would say that could absolutely shape things. And if, by chance, Zach has a bad year, again, and his sponsors, for whatever reason, aren't quickly or readily re-signing to add 21, 22, 23, and it's a lot of provisos here, the Andretti team finds some other sponsors that are interested, and they want to try and bring another dri- Hey, Kamui Kobayashi. Wait a minute. He drives for Toyota right now. Um, could that be some sort of domino after domino after domino falling that would then lead to Zach not driving? Possibly. But this is going to be something to monitor throughout the year. But I can't think of any scenario that doesn't involve the team losing a pretty painful lawsuit for doing anything less than providing Zach with a car. So, a bit of a non-starter, I would say. Uh, Jeff Greendike says, MP, are there any racing photographers you feel followers should follow? Great question. Uh, Scott LePage, for sure. Uh, Chris Owens, who was IndyCar's head photographer, and uh, I think he's now IMS in that role there at IMS for sure. Uh, Sean Gritzmacher, uh, who's pretty phenomenal. Um, Camden Thrasher. I haven't seen Camden, Camden at races for a little while, but he's, I would say, the most talented youngish photographer I I, I think anyone, anyone of us have seen. Um, all Camden all the time. That guy's just a freak. Uh, beyond that... I think his name is Alex Wong, and I apologize for not being able to say that authoritatively because that speaks less of me. He shoots for Joseph Newgarden and I think a handful of other drivers and or possibly teams. He's silly. <laughs> Just silly. His talent, silly. Uh, my friend and a bit of a photography mentor helped me a lot when i hadn't shot for a good while when i kind of got back into things bob chapman from autosport image um I'm trying to think who else and i know i'm gonna forget uh, a lot um who else i mean well i mean th- these are some of these i say this like they're obvious realizing that some of the names i might mention now are just you know meaningless to those who aren't really diehard racing for photography fans mike levitt who's the head of lat who's been around forever who's just you know uh he knows how to shoot him some photographs uh reaching out a little bit outside of indycar but you know some of these folks congregate back and forth uh rick dole i mean just you know the pros pro regis lefebure he's yeah he is someone who most of the professional photographers look to for inspiration. Um, 
if we're talking probably the best, and I mean just the best, the person alive who is actively shooting photographs for decades, probably been Paul Henri Cahier. Um, yeah, I mean, come on. Um, that guy, I don't even know what planet he's from, but um, just on some different, different stuff. There's a lot, um, more and more, Jeff, that have become phenomenal. And again, I know that I'm forgetting some uh, for sure. And if any of those folks are dumb enough to listen to my podcast, I apologize. Uh, I'll tell you this, this is this topic has changed in the last probably five years. Because had you asked this five years ago, I'd probably give you three names, four names at most. And what has happened that I have observed is, you know, the photos that I used to be able to take that I thought were pretty unique, right? And I'm not saying the other, you know, experienced shooters couldn't take them, but, you know, the stuff where I'm like, all right, I know that not everybody could do what I just did. Honestly, Jeff, I have abandoned that notion altogether because whether it's an Alex Wong or a Camden, Thra- Camden, Camden Thrasher. I'm not drunk, but I'm going to take a sip just so that I could justify it. Sam Cobb is an, <clears throat> is another one who has a silly talent. Um, Allison Marion, uh, actually Al Padron, I apologize. Uh, she's nutty. On her, I mean, there's just, <laughs> there's a lot where... Again, not trying to make this sound like, oh, I was a really great photographer and I've been for a long time and these new pups, not at all, not at all. Just sharing that I know that at least looking at what I used to produce five plus years ago and would then look at what the other photographers who I look at and go, oh boy, you know, I know you're good. I'd see a lot of similarities that at least made me feel good that I had talent and that was a little bit unique. I look at what so many of the photographers in, whether it's the IndyCar Media Center, the IMSA Media Center, Lamar Media Center, and so on, look what they crank out, whether it's for the series or for their clients or for individual drivers, and I just don't even feel a need to try anymore, Jeff. I really don't. And I mean, like, I'm not going to try and just shoot crap. I just mean, like, hey, I really want to try and do some individualistic stuff. That used to be the thing that set you apart, really trying to do some unique things. Things have gotten to a point where the unique, hard, abstract stuff has been elevated to the bare minimum buy-in, the min- the just the absolute bare minimum point for the majority of those who shoot full-time today. That's the thing that just stands out where I'm like, wow. <laughs> so I see whatever it is on new gardens, Instagram and this drivers and that drivers. And I just kind of throw my hands up. I'm like, I mean, there's no, there's no reason. Not only where I thought I was good X amount of years ago and felt like I was, you know, eye to eye with, you know, a lot of the really good photographers. Now I just bow my head like, Nope. <laughs> uh, y'all got it. Um, so, yeah, hopefully some of those names are ones to uh, to follow. And if uh, you want to know more, you know, whatever, drop me a link or a note or a DM or a something. Uh, hit me up on MySpace, and uh, I'll try and point you towards uh, more of their work or whatever. 
All right. Uh, I'm going to grab two more here. Then it is time for me to spend the rest of the evening with my amazing lady. Danny White says, I listened to Don Kay's show. Lord bless you, Danny. Where is yours taped or broadcast from? It is recorded in my office in the Bay Area in California, and it is broadcast from the host I pay each month, a service offered by Podbean, and I upload my shows to Podbean, and then through some effort that I made and also some of the relationships they have, it is not only made available on their hosting site, it is also then distributed in lands at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wide variety of places that pick up that feed. So there you go. Jeremy Lorton, final one for the evening. MP, if you could see two drivers from any era have a final three-lap battle for the twin checkered flags at the Indianapolis 500, who would you pick and why? Well, I'm going to go nostalgia because I've seen many drivers in IndyCar, so I would choose Jeremy. Two heroes, two of my all-time of all-time heroes, both of whom never seen race. They either passed or retired before that was possible. So the first would be Jimmy Murphy, someone from, uh, although I was born, what, 10 minutes south of San Francisco, fellow Bay Area guy, Jimmy Murphy, um, someone who I just, Yeah, he has been an idol of mine for his achievements and what he made happen for himself in life, knowing uh, all the hardships he went through uh, coming up in California on the California board tracks and the fact that he not only won the Indianapolis 500, uh, the fact that he won the final race at Le Mans before it became the 24-hour event, but most importantly, uh, someone who became the first American to win a European Grand Prix, a Grand Prix period. Uh, This guy who died at 30 years old, killed on one of the board tracks, despite being king of the board tracks. Um, To think that he won... The Indianapolis 500 and the French Grand Prix uh, year to year in secession. Uh, that just blows me. <laughs> it absolutely blows me away. So you think about Jimmy winning the Indy 500 in 1922. Uh, what then adding? I always forget. I think it was a year before at Le Mans. So maybe it was two years before the 24-hour race uh, it had its very first event. But nonetheless... It'd be Jimmy Murphy for sure. Uh, One of the most talented, outrageously skilled drivers who led a hard scrabble life. And that always fascinates me too. Um, That would be one. 
And the other one would be Daniel Sexton Gurney, um, the Big Eagle, because I never got a chance to see him drive. Uh, know all the tales, seen plenty of footage and all that, but actually getting to see Jimmy Murphy, uh, boy, kind of the, the A.J. Foyt of the late teens, early 20s, uh, didn't live long, but uh, knowing that this guy was truly uh, the best of the best, formative days of the Indy 500, going over barnstorming, winning at Le Mans, crazy, crazy Grand Prix victory. And then the Big Eagle. I'd love to see the two of them. Uh, I don't know about the era. I'm not sure when, you know, what era I'd say we put them in a car and whatnot. But, yeah, uh, boy, that to me, if I could climb in the old, I guess, time machine and bring one forward maybe up to the Big Eagle era, I don't know. Um, That's what I'm thinking here, Jeremy. So thanks for your question. And I'm going to be back tomorrow. We're going to start off with our man, Tim Hubble. Yes, friends, we are continuing. It is Wednesday evening at 5.49 p.m. California. Got a call coming up here sometime soon. Not sure when with our man, the 2013 Indianapolis 500 winner, Tony Kanon. Our man, Antoine, going to call in. We're going to record something early that we'll sit on and post in the morning when the official press conference takes place at Indianapolis. So I figured, you know, it's almost six o'clock and why don't we just see how far we can get, maybe get in the rest of the episode before TK picks up the old tell phone. Cause I really like to have a nice evening with my wife and the sooner we get that started, well, that's going to be pretty awesome. So let's get rolling again with our man, Tim Hubble, who says MP, there've been some drivers and teams that the paddock and fans were really happy for when they had a first big success. Like when Dale Coyne's team got their first win or when Tony finally won the Indy 500, which do you think would give the paddock and fans a more warm and fuzzy feeling? Ed Carpenter winning the Indy 500 or Marco winning the Indy 500? I think that's a easiest one to answer here, Tim. And that's because if we're talking connection and rooting for and son of the speedway, I think it has to be Ed without question. While I'm sure some others would say the opposite. No, no, no. Marco for sure. All because of that last name, all because of the long and storied family history. I can't disagree with that, but I do believe that Marco, despite being well-known to us, I don't think he's just connected with enough people to have a big buzz, a big thing among fans and to create that warm and fuzzy feeling. I get happy when he wins. I mean, it's been a while, but... You know, I was there for the last one. Uh, I think I was there for the first one, too, and super happy for him. But I just don't believe he has a significant base of fans who would be jumping up and down and getting super happy. Ed, we at least know an entire state would be <laughs> taking, uh, what, Monday off if he were to win the 500, if not Tuesday. So, yeah, has to be Ed. And I got to admit, I I would, 
if I was being super impartial guy, no, wait a minute, partial, not impartial, partial. If I'm being super partial, uh, I would go with Ed as well because, man, um, it just seems like Marco has reconciled within himself that great things in his career are not forthcoming. Still doing the thing that he does and, I guess, enjoys, but I don't believe he's going to show up at St. Petersburg for the first practice session thinking, I'm going to be the champion at the end of the year and the Indy 500 winner. Ed, on the other hand, although he won't be driving at St. Pete, I think Ed's going to be thinking, you know, I have every reason to believe I can be on pole for the 500 and win. So he's still in the fight, the the mental and spiritual fight to get the thing that means so much to him and the family. So I'm going with Ed all day. Rymanoceros from Reddit. This question, I want you to know, I usually don't read ahead. I try and just take them as they come. This one did jump out to me and actually read it to my wife as well because it's a pretty interesting premise. It says, Marshall, is there any governing of sponsors by IndyCar? For example, taking money from a nonprofit to increase, quote, awareness or even a company like AMR, whose customers generally have no choice in another service. So that seems dubious at best. Goes on to say, in an industry with a history of sketchy sponsors, it seems like it would make sense to avoid situations where desperate teams accept money from entities who in the end turn out to be more of a hindrance than a help. So the angle that jumped out to us on this one, which I found quite fascinating, was the AMR side. Definitely worth separating any questions of poor intent or otherwise for their association with IndyCar safety team. Keep in mind before it was the Homatro safety team, Homatro manufacturers of safety extraction and otherwise equipment. The fact that we have AMR branding this, trying to gain recognition for their business a service that they provide doesn't stand out as strange to me. And if anything, it's perfect. Uh, where this does stick out a little bit, though, for my wife and I, and I guess we'd never thought of this. So we've paid a lot of ambulance bills, dear Rymano Cirrus, over the last 16, 17 months since we've been in this cancer fight. Uh, <laughs> the fun thing and it wasn't from AMR. It was from one of their rivals. Uh, we get bills. Good, like, impressive bills. <laughs> that just show up randomly. Like the one that showed up uh, two weeks ago, maybe, for 2700 and something dollars for a single ambulance trip. I can tell you it the overall service was less than an hour. The distance traveled was less than one mile, about three quarters of a mile. So uh, it's a little bit of a salty question for us just because we've had to use a lot of ambulances. And it's not necessarily because in every instance or most instances where things have been going horribly bad and we need emergency services it's 
time to go leave the hospital and go get a CT scan or this or that or radiation or whatever. And what's the preferred method of travel? It's not an SUV. It's an ambulance. Even across the street, (laughs) which there were dozens of back and forth and back and forth just across the street to the sister property that did this thing or did that thing that they didn't do in the building we were in. So fortunately, a lot of those, not all of them, but a lot of those been covered by insurance. And just what stood out here, and I guess I'm sharing this uh, for the subject of involuntary, uh, some of these we've absolutely volunteered. The one where we got a bill, <laughs> truly, seven months later, out of nowhere, for 2700 and change? Just saying. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much you all make per month. I know how much, how you all structure your finances and your savings, how much you have left over. I know that folks have been very generous in trying to help my wife and I through a GoFundMe page, which has been crucial. Uh, Keep in mind that page was started, what, eight months ago? Um, Almost nine months ago. So amazing help just sharing that. I don't know how many of you are accustomed to like, okay, well, this is pretty much our fixed income and things are a little bit tight. And there's a bill for almost $3,000, first of all. And then the thing that really jumped out is I kind of think in hours and wage and labor. So if I'm going to spend an hour doing something and that service has a value, I tend to think of that's how much it's worth per hour. I am not discounting the fine and amazing work that EMTs do, the costs and overhead for buying and operating a high-tech, cutting-edge ambulance that does many amazing things. I'll just share this with you, dear Rymano Saris. After getting that bill recently where... You know, I really appreciate what they did. Um, I We just sure as heck didn't know what kind of bill was going to come our way. Um, we were kind of half thinking, maybe we should look into buying an ambulance and starting a business. Because if we could get paid almost $3,000 for less than one hour's work to travel less than one mile... Man, did we choose the wrong career paths. (laughs) There is no amount of good old story writing. There's no amount of video shooting or podcast talking that is going to rival that kind of, I hate to say it, not massive expenditures of, of time or anything else or distance to earn that amount. So, yeah, wrong line of work. But I don't know. I, I don't fault in AMR or any of the others that do this, I do know that in many cases, like you mentioned here, yeah, person is just had a heart attack, person passed out, person got beat up and is unconscious. You call an ambulance, get the person to the hospital. I guess I never really thought of it in those terms of the person who might be unconscious or unable to speak or act for themselves does in the interest, I guess, of either saving their life 
or receiving necessary-ish medical attention involuntarily sign up for some sort of significant bill and not for the medical care itself, but just for the transportation. And again, I know that there could be medical expertise applied by the EMT. So not again, not crapping on that in general, uh, the people just the, 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 the dollars and cents side might be a little bit strange for me to understand and so, yeah, I guess that is an interesting one. But, you know, outside of the involuntary, I intentionally called uh, the police and the fire department, and <clears throat> they dispatched the appropriate people to help us and uh, get my wife from our third floor, no elevator domicile to the hospital where all this uh, kicked off. The most recent journey, what, end of June, uh, early July, whatever it was. So, yeah, uh, but no beef. I mean, honestly, with AMR, what they're trying to do, uh, I'd say it's a pretty brilliant marketing plan. Frankly, uh, if I am wanting to earn government contracts, local municipality contracts to offer safety services, medical services, ambulance services, um, I would say being able to show in the wearing your branding that look at some of the stuff we do here. Uh, I know that, you know, maybe the get, guy getting picked up, having crashed his bike hard into, you know, a wall, that person might not fully grasp how the folks tending to driver X who crashed wearing AMR branded gear would somehow trickle down to them, but just, you know, it's not a bad marketing thing at all. As for the nonprofit raising awareness side, not sure that thing stands out as too strange to me in terms of a question raising topic. I see a number of those. We see a number of those per year. Usually at Indy is where some of these ones pop up that we've never heard of. It doesn't mean it's a bad thing. I would just say that the th- question that comes to my mind is, how are you benefiting from this? I mean, you can do whatever you want with your money, obviously. And if they're doing bad things, I'm sure they'll get, you know, checked by their board of whomever or donors or something. But I do wonder in some instances that unless you are the primary sponsor of an entry and there's serious months before, during the month, and even after follow-up where we are just pounding you with promotions and awareness and everything going on around this nonprofit initiative. Um, I do wonder how much true benefit and awareness comes from some of these things. We're talking about Indiana donor network. I think they really made a great impact and sustained it over a couple of years. So that one jumps out. Some of the other ones where you go, Oh, you're the associate. I love what you're doing again. No, nothing negative about the intent or what they're trying to do. I just wonder if, as an associate, among all the other sponsors on the car and not being the primary, how do you really stand out or make that impact that you hope to? So not questioning the motive, just genuine question of, is there value coming back? Like you are asking. Let's go to Joey the Priuses, who asks, is Chilton coming back? I know his dad had a big business deal a couple of weeks ago with Gallagher and Capsicum, and I assume that deal being done would end any delay in working out sponsorship plans. 
but we've heard nothing. Uh, yep. So I frankly forget whether I mentioned this in the open of the show or not in some of those questions. So if I did, I apologize if I didn't, uh, here we go. I don't know, Joey. And I've asked people who should know, and they've told me, I don't know. We've heard nothing. So just going to stand on what we were told that we are going to have the team, two cars, everything is good. And yeah, but, uh, boy, February sure is not far away. (laughs) Um, and if you're listening to this, it might even be early February. So who knows? But tomorrow is Thursday, the 30th. Uh, Fridays are generally known in the media business as take out the trash days. Uh, that's the day where you usually fire off the press releases, make the announcements that don't mean much, but you have to, or they're kind of embarrassing or some big changes happen that you don't really want to have fly too heavily on the radar. So you fire that out end of day, Friday kind of thing, just so you can say, got it done. Information went out, but boy, we really chose the most inopportune time. If you're trying to get headlines, trying to get awareness, we sent it out at the time that we know and is proven to get the least. That's when you bury stuff. So if Tony Kanon has major news that will be presented tomorrow, Indianapolis Motor Speedway and IndyCar and IMS are geared up to support that. It would be really strange if the Carlin team had anything on Thursday as well. Fridays tend to be take out the trash day, so I can't imagine they would be silly enough to send something out then. That pushes us into (laughs) next week. Uh, We would hope they would know that Sunday is pretty much second Christmas in America with the Super Bowl. So Monday would probably be a day where a lot of folks are drunk, hungover, taking the day off, happy because their team won, mad because their team lost, and not giving as much of a fart as they might about who is driving an IndyCar for a particular team. So, And then the following Tuesday, we are at Coda. <laughs> Actually, Monday is media day. Uh, Tuesdays, the 11th is the first on track for spring training. So if we assume it's not going to be this week, it would have to be next week. Uh, I really should have researched this one that comes in from paleblue.24. Do you know what ever happened to Harrison Scott? He had that really scary crash in Pro Mazda a few years ago where the car went airborne, but he came away mostly unscathed. He did one more race that year, finished third, and appears his career just ended after that. I must admit, I haven't heard about the kid from the kid. I don't know the kid, but I haven't, until you mentioned, hadn't thought, hadn't heard, I should try and find out. J.D. Ellis, he sent in a great one here. MP, as is the fashion, members of the IndyCar paddock as members of Monty Python. Send this one back in, if you would, J.D., in a couple weeks. My creative brain is not my ally right now, which I apologize because it's a brilliant, brilliant question. Uh, Just give me a couple weeks to maybe restock my head a little bit there. Let's go to 82 GMC Jimmy. Marshall, can you give a brief overview of the engine manufacturer Aero Kit era? What led to it? Did Chevy and Honda enjoy and embrace it? You know, we'll go back to the beginning of this current era, that being the dawn of the iconic committee that came up with this small displacement twin turbo V6, single turbo V6, 
option presented to teams, manufacturers with an ability to do arrow kits and stylized bodywork, initially embraced, then initially not embraced. Uh, one of the interesting factoids, and it's meaningless, but uh, it just stands out to me as really the overarching topic when it comes to the manufacturer arrow kits that lasted from what was it 2015 through 2017 was i remember randy bernard former indycar ceo saying that when he was sitting down with danny bahar who was the ceo of lotus at the time i believe they were in las vegas and danny said all right we're gonna do an engine we're gonna be an engine supplier we're coming gonna be there in 2012 and randy was like great oh my we got three chevy honda and lotus this is great then mentioned and we're going to do aero kits too where manufacturers can do that as well bahar known as a bit of a air quotes interesting character uh said oh we'll we'll do that too we're in we're going to do that too and i remember afterwards not too long afterwards, but after Lotus was stumbling and bumbling and clearly not doing what they needed to be competitive, spending the right amount of money with our pals at Engine Developments. Remember Randy saying, I think just between Robin and I, that that stood out to me. That was worrying when he had no idea about arrow kits, really what they were zero understanding of the costs. And the minute that I mentioned it, he said, Oh, we're in Oh, we're all in. We're all about this. He said, that was my first real indicator that things with Lotus could go bad because I think they're just saying yes to a lot of things and probably not doing the full due diligence on what's going to happen here, what it's going to take money and time and resource. Like he's just saying yes to stuff. And those things tend not to work out as well as you would hope. And they didn't. So we had Lotus that then balked at it. Chevy and Honda came back, I believe, and said, okay, you know, we're not against it, but man, it sure is going to be more expensive than we thought to get these engines up and running and pools of engine leases going and it's let's not make this a crushing financial blow right away and so that is to my understanding what led to it being tabled you might remember as well during that 2012 13 ish era maybe even 14 i'm not sure at some point there was, hey, we're going to try and get arrow kits going in. Oh, we're going to do arrow kits. And then it didn't go anywhere. And, hey, we're going to do. And then I think our pal Derek Walker, who was in charge at that time, was very keen on the idea. Uh, just there was a lot of failures to launch. So when it did happen, it did surprise me a little bit. I truly don't know who among the manufacturers, uh, or if it was just both independently and at the same time, said, okay, yeah, let's do this. My guess is on the engine side, we did have a point where you know things have become fairly well-developed. It's not as if there were huge areas of performance to find with 
Honda moving to the twin turbo solution. We now had both manufacturers twin turbo V sixes by the end of 2014, obviously three years of racing with those motors, but those had been in development for a year, year and a half before that. This is a point where I think both manufacturers said, okay, well, if we're looking for areas to distinguish ourselves and find advantages and, and such, let's go the aero route. Let's do this manufacturer body work. And I just seem to recall IndyCar being pretty happy about that. The shock, the true shock, is that this is something that Chevy absolutely dominated. And that's not because Chevy bad, Chevy dumb, any of that. What it was is Honda was so renowned for its aerodynamic expertise. There was on the surface and just the surface, every reason to believe that Honda was going to mop the floor with Chevy because Chevy does, did not, does not, did not have the infrastructure, the team, the everything it needed to catch up and match Honda's experience. Well, wrong. <laughs> totally wrong. Chevy, the biggest advantage we have seen during this current DW12 era in any capacity from both manufacturers. It's not on the engine side. It was the aero side. Oh, I mean, the Honda stuff was so bad, so bad. And the Chevy side was, by comparison, less adventurous, less a million little winglets and flicks and this is and that, right? You put the two side by side, not only was it easy to tell them apart, but you could just see the purer approach that Chevy took. And I'm forgetting the name of the guy. He has a bit of a weird name, as I recall. But the guy who was in charge of things for Chevy on the Chevy side. But, man, did they just say, you know, we're going to do an aero kit that works quite well, makes good down, like makes really good downforce more than anything, makes excellent drag figures. And from a tunability standpoint, big old window man this you know you are not going to have a hard time piling on or taking off the downforce that you want and making that car handle and have that nice aerodynamic balance that is consistent to give you fast consistent lap times our friends at hpd man they went buck nutty uh what was the count in the very beginning with all the little winglets and stuff packed onto the front of the car i forget the number but it was something like with everything it was 20 plus wing elements i know some of them were tiny but it, i mean it was just like you know it looked more like <laughs> a uh some sort of unlimited vehicle going up the mountain at pike's peak with you know just you go are, this, are you kidding me so there's no rules. Well, there were rules, but HPD went the, we're going to go to the quadruple maximum extreme. They also did the, oh, hey, and one of our service providers is at the forefront of CFD and 
digital aerodynamic development, and that's going to take us to the front. And it didn't by any stretch. Um, Bad. So they had to work really hard to try and make that 2015 kit work. Uh, that is where our good friend Justin Wilson uh, went from having no ride to getting picked up by select numbers of uh, rounds at Andretti Autosport paid for by Honda because the big man was helping HPD to develop this aero kit, which needed a huge amount of effort to try and make good. So, yeah, I think in the total downforce wars i think honda won if that's a thing you know in terms of that being a valuable battle to win i think their peak numbers were maybe 150 to 200 pounds higher but (laughs) if you look at the amount of winning chevy did versus honda during that three-year span uh boy 2015 2016 in particular it was ugly if you were a honda fan obviously we had takuma sato winning the indy 500 in 2017 so that was great we know that you know it, through a lot of time and effort and some concessions by indycar i forget the rule rule 2.8 or whatever the number was it's been a while since so i've had to think about it so i apologize but um indycar allowed a redevelopment of uh the honda aero kit because it it really needed it and you know by 2017 ish things weren't terrible um we did have of course joseph newgarden win the championship and the year before in 2016 we did have simon pagina win the championship and uh the year before who won that 2015 championship well pretty good guy by the name of scott dixon granted he was using a chevrolet at the time so at least during the manufacturer air kit era we had chevy winning the title overall in 2015 with dixie and the chevy powered juan monterior winning the indy 500 in 2016, obviously, we had our man, Simon Pagano, winning the title for Roger in a Chevy and Will Power winning the 8500 with a Chevy Aero kit. And come 2017, well, that was kind of a fun year where indeed we had Joseph Newgard win his first title and yet Honda broke through and won the 500. So if you're looking at the six total things to win that mean the most during that three-year stretch, dear 82 GMC Jimmy, we had Chevy taking five, all three driver championships and two of the three Indy 500s. And then I believe there was just a a overall belief that the thing that scared folks away from doing air kits in the beginning, boy, this is going to be ridiculously expensive. Uh, That just crept in. Pretty quickly, actually. And by the end of 2017, there was a general belief that quality racing was not necessarily getting too much better, but the manufacturers were spending tens of millions per year to develop and search for areas to improve and yada, yada, yada. So that's the brief-ish overview I can give you. 
Ryan Terpstra. MP, if I was to set the over-under at two and a half drivers in the number 14 Foyt car this year, I should bet over, right? Yes, you should. Uh, I have somewhat decided to go to Gateway over Iowa this year, thinking it'll be TK's last race. Whether it is or it isn't, you should go to Gateway. It's an awesome track, awesome people, great spectacle. Let's go to Derek Bartoshek. says, Marshall, hope you and your better half are doing well. Thank you. He says, submitted this last week. In your opinion, who wins in an epic race between these six drivers? We're using the same spec-prepared car of your choice. Joe Tonto or Jimmy Bly from Driven, Cole Trickle and Russ Wheeler from Days of Thunder, and Ricky Bobby or Jean Girard from Talladega Nights. And he says, side note, Sasha Baron Cohen would be a shoo-in to play Simon Pagano in IndyCar the movie. That's a great point. Who wins? Well, I mean, if we're talking reality here, true, true reality, I got to believe it, it's Russ Wheeler. You know, I think there's a little too much Michael Bay smoke and mirrors and bullshit in uh, Days of Thunder to lead me to believe that Cole Trickle was the best on track. And the fact that he was a former, what did they call him, California IndyCar guy or something, I don't even know what that means. You know, the, Russ Wheeler, that guy had it. I never bought the Jean Girard talent side, him coming from Formula One. See, isn't that, that's the way, right? You take the open-wheel guy who's either from the the west coast he must be weird and strange and out of our league or the french guy from formula one he must be really strange yeah i don't i don't buy that garbage i'm going russ wheeler and i could be totally wrong but that's a fun part of the show i say things they don't matter and i have absolute confidence that you don't give a crap uh ron thompson question about eric cowden and engineering you said that the Foyt team's testing on a shaker rig sent them down the wrong path last year. With Cowden now at coin, can he take that knowledge and eliminate some changes the team may want to try, or is that team-specific? Well, Ron, that is a whole tangle of conflicting things in one question, uh, or in one submission. Uh, Yes, the Foyt team had data correlation issues with... 20 plus days, 20 ish days of shaker rig testing. And those cost tens of thousands of dollars. The way I've heard it told a couple different times from those who I think would know, haven't so much put this down to Eric, but more an assistant engineer who was also let go. But the key point here, Ron, is. This is bad information. So if Eric were to take that bad information that he gathered doing shaker rig, just call it suspension testing with a Chevy powered car at Foyt and try and bring that bad information to use on a Honda powered car at coin, which although they are darn near identical, they do have some differences and, center of gravity and this and that, right? They have the tiniest, but still worth noting, differences in how they affect the handling of a car. Um, Bad info from a Chevy IndyCar and applying that to a Honda IndyCar would be not impossible, but 
The bad part is what would make this something where if Eric were to say, hey, look at what I have snuck with me from Foyt and said that to Dale Coyne or Terry Brown, the team manager, or Olivier Boisson, um, they would walk Eric out the door and then shout really bad things at him and then take whatever belongings he's brought inside the shop and throw them at him and lock the door and maybe call the police because they'd say they have a crazy person on the property. So if this was golden information, that boy, we found the magic setup, the magic damping solution, the magic everything solution, then, yeah, that would certainly be something that, uh, boy, if he really wanted to, which, you know, probably hope he wouldn't, um, that could be something that they might try and see how they could incorporate or duplicate uh, with their Honda-powered cars at COIN uh, with identical damper builds and just yada, yada, yada. Uh, but owing to the fact, Ron, that this tanked their year, this would not be information for them to br- for him to bring. And, you know, things are kind of proprietary in that way. Um, depending upon the team, the ones that have been around for a while and have pretty robust infrastructure and management and just all really, you know, deep, proper layers, right? Legal department, human resources, you know, compared to some, maybe honestly a little more Foyt-like, maybe a little more coin-like that are more family operations, right? Um, At least for the bigger teams, the ones that really have a lot of, of institutional knowledge and practices, their employee contracts will have some brutal language regarding IP, uh, the intellectual property owned by the team, non-compete, non-disclosure on that side, so that while the last team the person worked for would have probably a hard time in tracing or tracking if written information has been taken, stolen, or walked out the door, I have seen for sure uh, evidence of teams doing significant electronic monitoring and going after recently departed employees who in checking their email, even though that person deleted everything, the sent folder, like thought that they scrubbed everything. Yeah. So you don't do that because even if you're sending stuff to your personal account, they are going to pull all this stuff up when you head out the door and say, okay, please take a look and tell me what you see. Uh, over the last X amount of months. And if is there anything that gives us a reason to believe that this person has been offloading information, copying information, whatever it is that they might take with them. And if they see evidence of that, they're probably going to go back even further. But there are certainly plenty of ways to circumvent all this. I get all that. But just know that you know, uh, with many teams, you're, you can't, prevent the person who has these things in their brain from applying the knowledge that they have gained. But a lot of the paperwork, a lot of the digital information uh, that complements this, if you have a photographic memory, you're going to be in really good shape. If you don't, you probably don't want to be tempted to start forwarding things, putting things in USB sticks and walking them out the door because if they're sitting on any kind of central server, There's going to be records of that, and then you might be in the pokey 
Let's go to Don Davis. Says, I was watching the 82 8500 the other day, and Sam Posey said, Driving for Roger Penske is like being a sailor on a German U boat. You know who the captain is. Is that where Sir Roger got his moniker? I don't know, Don. I've never asked. I would say that would be it'd be an interesting way for that to happen. I wonder though, I should ask Miller if he recalls the captain being used beforehand. Uh, we're going back to Ron Thompson again, who asked us a fam the Gurney family have the Eagle chassis Robbie Gordon drove back in the day. That blue one with the yellow nose and the multicolor accents might be my favorite livery. That being the John's Menard, John's Menard, uh, John's Manville, I believe. Yes, they do, Ron. Uh, it is at their primary base in Santa Ana, California. Uh, let's go to Fine. Fine. Disregard. Says, Hi, Marshall. I'm looking forward to the bold new era under Penske. Do you think there are any lessons any car can take from what Liberty, Liberty Media have and haven't achieved since they took over F1 in 2017? Says, Liberty came in as outsiders, but otherwise, I can see some parallels in terms of the challenges making the series commercially sustainable, attracting manufacturers, and sorting out new sets of regulations. Uh, as a recent high-profile racing series takeover, it's been making its mistakes in public. Will the new management be looking to Liberty's approach and results as a barometer or simply do their own thing? Would go with the do-their-own-thing side here, Mr. or Mrs. Fine Disregard? Roger has always paid attention to markets to gauge how he and his companies are doing, but I don't believe we're going to see a situation where they're checking Liberty or using Liberty as a case study on how they should or shouldn't do things. Throw in here just a little bit of a, a sidebar. Biggest area of growth I have seen and think might be a the the jump out item from what Liberty has done in taking controlling interest of Formula One is embracing what former boss owner or whatever Bernie Ecclestone just poo pooed forever, and that was digital media. And it's interesting to look at the growth of Formula One in that space, whether it is the good old Facebooks and tweeters and whatnot. Formula One since Liberty came online in that ownership space, they have taken F1 from nowhere to a million miles an hour. And it's been crazy impressive. All driven, though, by the fact that they more or less started at scratch, super late to adopt, have gone very hard to try and make up space, and they've seen big growth as a result. I don't want to say IndyCar has been hardcore in the digital space in ways that others have not, but they have been pretty darn good in that regard. I would say if Roger is, is looking for ways to emulate the big improvements and rapid improvements that Liberty has been able to do with F1, it would be in, frankly, following this exact model. It will and would involve hiring more people on the production side, editing side, creative side. Not just talking about, hey, post a photo of something cool on Instagram. I mean these really fast, slick, and compelling 
video cut downs, you know, qualifying this, qualifying that, practice this, history, the top 10 of that. Hey, we're at this track here. Here's the top 10, whatever. Man, they are constantly feeding folks with new and interesting and, you know, fun stuff that folks want to share that helps build the series. I am not saying that IndyCar has not and does not. They have. They've been doing a good job. There's tons of talent at IMSP. I mean, so this is, you know, it's all there. The only thing I would say Roger and company would be wise to do is to say, huh, when we're setting budgets, this would be an area to over-provision. And the more we can crank out, the more unique, interesting shareable content we can send out to the world the better we're going to do for ourselves the more we're going to help ourselves it has really done that for f1 and it's been pretty crazy to see how folks who didn't know about it know about it simply because of this hard online push it's an international series i get that it goes to 22 23 different countries you know so their ability to connect with the globe different than ours we go to here (laughs) our travel schedule includes here uh we go a little bit north once to good old canadia yeah but that's it so again i realize we don't have that same depth into india and here and there but we sure do have drivers from a lot of different countries and those countries have the good old tweeters and book faces and the mobile phones and all kinds of interesting stuff. So that to me would be the, the big push, the big, big push. Uh, Robbie Bergren, Marshall Goodyear has a long history at Indy. I know they got their butts kicked by Bridgestone Firestone in the late nineties in formula one and cart. Don't disregard IRL. They got destroyed there uh, too. I know that because let's see, I think all but one of the teams I worked for in the Earl uh, were Firestone users. Uh, Robbie asks, do you have any thoughts why they've not tried to get back at all into any major motorsports beyond NASCAR? I don't. Uh, in the U.S. here, I can tell you that in Europe, uh, they are replacing um, their, the, I believe they own Dunlop. I forget. I could be totally wrong. But uh, there's been a bit of a branding change in the World Endurance Championship. So big international sporty cars. Uh, where Goodyear, the Goodyear name, uh, is back. And, yeah, uh, displacing, I believe it's Dunlop. So they've done that. That, to me, would be smart internationally through that series. As for why here, get this question a couple times a year, Robbie, and I haven't come up with a, a better answer than the one I normally give, which is it's the Audi Le Mans question. Audi until... How's this? Audi was so dominant at the 24 hours of Le Mans, their LMP1 prototypes were so revolutionary and advanced and all-conquering that it truly scared other manufacturers from coming to play because they knew they would have to spend so much money to hope of just matching where Audi was that it wasn't worth trying. That changed after a while. 
after some of that revolutionary Audi technology got a little bit long in the tooth, we had Peugeot come in. And we had Toyota after that. Porsche came in, the Nissan for a little bit. Uh, but it really was a case of the product is so good, so dominant, and there was so much expertise that went into making those cars untouchable that for, you know, a really long time, many, many, many manufacturers said, nope, not even going to consider it. So we got here, man, with Firestone. It is such a good product. It is so well-developed that could Goodyear do it? Sure. Would they have to spend a fortune to come up with something to match Firestone, much less exceed? I think that's where the struggle comes in. I think the amount of money needed to get back into a space they haven't been in for what, 20-ish years? That, to me, is why we don't see him back. Uh, it's not that easy, man. Um, it just isn't. Uh, let's go to Robbie again. This is Marshall. If you've seen the movie Free Jack, I would like you to compare the skills of Alex Furlong, Emilio Estevez's character, to Joe Tonto. Yes, I saw it. I didn't see it in the theater, but I do recall grabbing it on VHS when it came out in the local video store. For those of you old enough, can you imagine there was a time where, no, you did not go to your Roku, uh, Amazon Fire Stick, or whatever else to access streaming anything because nothing streamed. Digital wasn't even a concept. Uh, And you went to the video store to rent a videotape, pay whatever amount of money, and then pay ridiculous late fees if you didn't get it back within 24 hours or 48 hours. (sighs) <sighs> fine old time yeah what was this around 88 89 something like that i think robbie with free jack i did see it what uh rolling stones lead singer mick jagger played the bad guy uh emilio estevez's character is driving a ralt i think it was rt4 formula atlantic car at road atlanta got embroiled in some sort of big crash which launched the car a million feet in the air and what i think he was about to hit one of the the drive over crossover bridges and then was somehow teleported into the future um yeah how's this uh going on joe tonto versus alex furlong i mean furlong was hot garbage man right had he not been free jacked into the future uh you know the guy would have died so uh, we got to go with Hum and Joe, Hum and Joe Tonto. Uh, but that's about all I got there. Uh, Brett Ross, MP, you're given four 2020 Super Bowl tickets to watch the 49ers. Thanks, man. I mean, it's that's my team, right? I mean, we live, uh, what, 12-ish minutes away from their new stadium in Santa Clara, but, you know, having grown up uh, on the peninsula right below Candlestick Park. Uh, I mean, yeah, lifelong 49ers fan and, some of you might recall a story I've told a couple times of at the grade school that I went to, uh, there was this new quarterback who was rumored to have bought a house right across from the grade school. And so myself and a couple of other friends decided to walk over and see if it was true. And we rang the doorbell. I think this was sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade. Uh, late late ish seventies, and 
Joe frickin' Montana opened the door. <laughs> uh, and I don't know why this little town that I grew up in by the name of Belmont had a number of 49ers living there. Uh, but one of our, one of my friends growing up was the son of one of, you know, the famous 49er wide receivers. Another one was the son, I think of, uh, one of the linebackers. So who knows for whatever reason, maybe the 49ers said, Hey, new players, you might check out this little town of Belmont population, 23,000 or something, um, and live there. So anyways, uh, Brett, yeah. So I, I've actually met Joe once, twice, maybe three times, you know, later in life, but briefly, but there was that I'll never forget it moment at, you know, seven years old or eight, whatever, however old I would have been. I don't know, uh, of ringing freaking Joe Montana's doorbell, him opening the door, us being gobsmacked, like, Oh, and he wasn't Joe Montana then. Right. He was just like the new quarterback guy that, you know, we had no idea. We just knew that he was a 49er. And uh, we asked him if uh, we could mow his lawn for him because we wanted to, like, you know, be of service and of value to what you said. No, I'm okay, guys, or something along those lines, and close the door. And so there you go. Uh, but you say here, after you take two for you and your wife, who in IndyCar do you give the remaining tickets to? <sighs> well, at first thought, I'd say Miller but he's a degenerate gambler and would probably try and scalp them and then go to some sort of Vegas bookie kind of something or other. Um, but he doesn't drink, so it's not like he get really drunk and act a fool there. But, um, uh, boy, who, who, who? I'm trying to, you know, obviously Graham Rahal is a huge football fan, but that being Ohio based college ball our guest this week ed carpenter obviously a butler guy lots of like hardcore college ball fans struggling to think of like major nfl you know die hard type types um you know i'd probably well yeah all right i'd probably for sure one of them you probably wouldn't want to sit with us, though. But one of them would be Alexander Rossi. He's a fellow Northern California guy, although he's more Northern and more East. Um, I would assume the 49ers would have been his favorite team growing up. And if not, then we're going to have to have a conversation because there's something wrong inside him. But I'd probably say Rossi, right? Kind of Bay Area-ish guy. And, you know, who else? The other one you're probably thinking of is Jerry Hildebrand. That would be a natural because uh, he is a true Bay Area guy, born and raised in the North Bay here. Who else? But I'm just trying to think, of, is there anyone else I'm, I'm forgetting uh, who would really, you know, Marcus Erickson, right? That's a natural. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd say Hinch, but I don't. Be I believe he would think that football was some sort of weird ice-based sport i don't think they have that so much in canada i hear about this gray cup thing every now and then i don't i think it's all just made up to be honest they don't have that in practice france i believe in quebec so not him um i mean hunter ray probably just because he's a man and you know mr all-america but he likes the dolphins right come on i mean what 
I'd say Herta because he's a Californian, but I, I'd bet a hundred dollars that child does not give a fart about football, and I'll happily give up that hundred, which I don't have, uh, if he does, because that'd be a great thing to learn. So yeah, let's go, let's go, Ross. I'll just keep it really simple. It'll be uh, three Californians and myself, Hildebrand and Rossi, and uh, my fine, amazing uh alabamian alabamian i don't know what that phrase is but my fine alabama product of mrs pruitt so uh yeah that's that's who i would invite i think for sure hildebrand would be a hoot i think rossi would also be a hoot i just don't know what kind of hilarity would be involved so yeah so a little bit of a mystery, right? Uh, where else do we go? Where? Oh, by the way, what? It's isn't it being held uh, in where? Some uh, somewhere not too far from Bourdais. I don't know. We probably swing by there, crash on the lawn or something, do a burnout, you know, uh, something like that. Uh, all right, let's go to Todd Murray. A little bit of a longer one here. Have you heard comments about Alonzo running a full inning season? Uh, not comments. I've heard folks say they've heard that he's going to, which I've mentioned, I believe I don't think it's going to happen. Um, would you have said the, uh, the same thing about Emerson Fittipaldi in 1982? Um, no. Cause what? I th- think his first foolish season was 84. I think he tried to qualify for Indy in what? 83 or anyways. Um, I don't know if I've seen any real similarities here, which you're asking for. Uh, just simply because Fittipaldi was what, 10, 11 years into an F1 career, which is very good. And he survived a very deadly time, but you know, Alonzo was, boy, that's a long career right there. Uh, to me with Fittipaldi, his F1 career could have extended another three, four, five, six years if, if he wanted it absolutely could have continued into the mid to late 80s and called time uh the fact that he did have you know not the longest of f1 careers immense success but not the longest of careers and decided to continue and added 12 13 years to his career once uh, after a couple years off getting back to uh to open wheel doing that indy car i think that was pretty cool with fernando i think it's just a very different situation Long and busy life and career, you know, a really long time in F1, um, made all the money in the world. I believe that when Fittipaldi was done in F1, yeah, that wasn't the case with the team ownership problems and sponsorship problems they had. I think they're just in two different places, Todd, uh, where Emerson had a lot more left in the tank. Alonzo does as well, but I don't believe there's a f- the feeling like, oh man, if I stop now, how much more am I leaving on the table? I think the guy could just cherry pick stuff, go do the ice racing series for a month and go do something in Australia and just like, hey man, I'm on the world bucket tour having fun and I'm going to pop in here, there and do my thing. I think he could do that and might do that signing up for a full season. I just still don't see that. Um, we've also mentioned your motorcycle club racer. Uh, talking about uh, big issue. You see is a deployment of an air fence, soft structures. Think of a, a kid's bouncy castle put in front of walls and close proximity to the track. 
Um, it says the exit of the bend. Chicanes replaced the, the link for bikers at Road America for existence. The air fence would have to be deployed and retrieved for every bike session. Only track I know where the air fence is not needed is Coda and Barber, maybe Laguna. The AMA tried it once in 1990 at the Miami street course. It was a big flop. The footage is on YouTube. Okay. Well, thanks for the info, Todd. Uh, I would say if it was tried once and it was a flop, then I don't know if we're talking about air fences for IndyCar. Let's go to John Wonar. And I still think I'm murdering your last name, John, but I apologize. MP haven't seen this happen in quite a few years, but is it still possible to have a mid-race relief driver in today's world of molded seats and headrests? Yes. Just a case where if a driver is ill, somewhat injured, whatever it might be, where there's a question of their ability to finish a race, and I think that only race we would really be talking about is the Indy 500. You know, could it be, could it be another... Well, we don't really have Pocono anymore, do we? So we don't have any big, long, giant races other than Indy that come to mind. If it was Indy, if we're talking prize money, if we're talking points for the entry side, because obviously, uh, what, I'm not sure how that would work on the driver's side because I should probably read the rules a little better. Er, er. Um, what we would probably see is a situation where if driver A is in that questionable place and they're going to want to be able to take the start and get as far as they can and have a reserve driver ready to continue. And it could be just as simple as, Hey, a sponsor has paid money. And if there's any question of that logo or those logos being seen and that sponsor receiving the value they've paid for, well, we just got to be out there. Um, I'd say that the team would likely Look for a driver, not only talented, not only capable, but hopefully similar size so that they could mold a seat insert that drops into the molded seat of the driver that would be getting out. That would be the fastest scenario. It's not going to be fast in general, but it's going to be faster than having to not only yank the headrest, but get all the belts out of the way, yank the seat, get the other seat in, get it right. Uh, in theory, it would be possible to take that insert and drop it in with the headrest in place, possibly, and you know expedite this under a yellow, hopefully, where the team doing this is not going down three laps, five laps. So would say that there would be a possibility, certainly, John, of this taking place. Probably be a little bit of a unique scenario. You know, if we're talking about some a driver who's in the championship hunt coming into the 500, and you know that you really want and need to score double points, then you know I could see that being pushed. Or if it was a driver where the sponsorship was linked to them and they needed to be on track, then, of course, having a standby ready would make sense. But other than that, I would say, you know, unless we're talking about a driver wakes up Sunday morning at Indy and is whatever they ate or whatever is coming out every front and back, and it's a surprise that they can't drive. Somehow overnight they got crazy food poisoning, dehydrated, can't drive. In most other scenarios, it's going to be a crash, it's going to be a whatever, and you'd think the team would have a little bit of time to do some strategery. Let's go to Will McCarty. MP, can you give me some detailed analysis of how the road to Indy has crumbled so much over the past decade? Star Maz used to be quite healthy, and now you suggest it should just go. 
In 2009, there were around 30 full-time cars between Lights and Atlantics. Back then, they didn't have scholarships, and during this decline, they seemingly had better series sponsorship, mentioning Mazda and Cooper Tires. I just don't get it. Uh, well, so the Star Mazda you mentioned, those have been gone for a little while. Uh, those have been replaced both chassis and power plant-wise and name by the Indy Pro 2000 series. Those Star Mazdas were not super expensive. They were good cars. They weren't that expensive. They were relatively simple. They were also pretty popular on the club racing level. That might be an area, Will, that has not been explored in this dynamic of, huh, why have things maybe crumbled a little bit uh, in terms of car counts? The 2-liter series, as I've just called it forever, USF 2000, F2000, FF2000, it's been called a lot of things. Um, That was really a super embedded and popular club racing class. And pretty cool that it also had a pro racing, or I should say, you know, low-level, road-to-indie type, pro-ish, you're going to try and make it to the top type dedicated series beyond club racing. Um, But there was this pretty cool thing where if you bought a two-liter car and you raced at SCCA at the time, well, you could just as easily take that same exact car and go do, whether it was the player's two-liter series in Canada or here in the U.S. um, under, you know, there's a variety of names, East Coast and West Coast championships. A lot of... Here's a great word. It isn't a word. Universability. Um, <laughs> it was a, a lot of universability with the USF 2000 cars. And so as a result, you had a lot of them. And it made it pretty darn good that it easy. If you had talent, you could go back and forth. You could learn in the club level, jump right up and go there. They weren't super expensive by any means. The engines were pretty darn simple two-liter motors out of a Ford Pinto, among some others, you know, made good horsepower, 140-ish, 145. Um, Just, you know, they were not high-tech, but they were high-quality. They had wings. You had to learn wings for the first time. Um, Lots of them around, and there you go, big numbers. Well, I don't believe that, Open wheel racing is so much of a a really thriving thing on the club racing level anymore. And the, hey, I went and bought a USF 2000 car that is spec now. Keep in mind, before there were multiple chassis manufacturers. And, you know, there's some choice here. Now, it's just one way. You either buy the spec car or you don't. And there you go. So I think that has hurt. I think just from a number standpoint, it's not as if that there are tons of current legal to run on the road to Indy USF 2000 cars just sitting in shops used. There just is not the volume of them that there once was to make it easy for folks to come out in the costs as well. While they aren't air quotes crazy on the road to Indy level, it's certainly significantly more than back in the day. On the Star Mazda side, I think we're talking about the same everything I just mentioned. Uh, There were tons of Star Mazdas. Man, those things were popular. There were, you know, independent championships 
being run with them because it was so easy to get a field of 15 or 20 to show up for a weekend at Sears Point uh, or name wherever. Lots of them. Easy to get a crowd. Weren't crazy expensive, and they traded hands regularly. So there was a bit of a commodity feel to them. That's another aspect as well. It's kind of the inverse of what I mentioned just a moment ago on the club side. If you're going to spend money, and you know, these things are never cheap, but if you're going to spend good money, it sure is good to know that you can take that thing to a variety of places and use it, right? You know, maybe you do want to be the next IndyCar champion and you want to buy that Tatus PM18 Indy Pro 2000 chassis, if I have the designation correct. Awesome. Seriously, awesome. What if you want to take that, you know, go do some local club racing? Uh, how easy is that? How streamlined is the entry process? What class does it fit in? Is, you know, again, is this, if you show up, what are you going to find? Are there going to be three or five other drivers in those PM18s where you can say, all right, I don't know if you're absolute going to be the next Indy 500 winner rivals, but I can sharpen my blade a little bit here. Not really so much the case. So uh, I think there's something in and around that area. Um, On the Indy Lights level, eh, that's never been a club thing. That's always been, you know, top tier, most expensive, closest to an Indy car. So I would not have any of those expectations. Just a case where the budgets there are too much. So, yeah, and I love back in the day when, you know, if you talk 2009 where there was uh, around 30 cars, uh, full-time cars between Lights and Atlantics. Keep in mind those lights cars, which I ran those for a little while, the Infinity Pro Series cars, man, those things were just dumb and cheap. Like super dumb, super cheap. Uh, so I would say if there wasn't 30-ish full-time between those two types of cars, there would have been something wrong. Um, on the Atlantic side, that is something that has been transferable with a healthy club racing presence forever. So you buy it, you race it on the pro level, you go do the club racing, you just get smarter, more reps, more everything. Not cheap, but at least, again, is there the the air quotes, hashtag universability? Yeah, it absolutely had it and a rich tradition of it. So I don't know. We're in an interesting time here. As we get down, you know, to the last question or two, we're in an interesting time, Will. The SCCA has a rival a distinct rival, SCCA Pro Racing, has the Road to Indy as a direct threat and rival to the Formula 3 series that it runs and the Formula 4 series. It wants to be a thriving place with lots of entries and a lot of people that care. That, again, makes perfect business sense. Would they then really encourage folks running in the the rival series the road to indy to come over in their territory you know uh, that's a interesting dynamic where in the past uh vicky o'connor's promotion agency that was the you know the administrative sanctioning ish type uh entity that ran the atlantic series they were neutral right i mean they just overlooked the atlantics from the pro level those cars scca you go do a club racing weekend, a national, try and win the national championships in the SCCA with your car. 
And then the following weekend, if there was an IndyCar race or a Trans Am race or whatever, and the pro, call it, Atlantic level was competing there for, you know, well before the, the formal road to Indy existed, you went there. And it was not uncommon for the person buying that Atlantic car or renting that Atlantic car would do a buttload of races per year because wanted to sharpen that steel, wanted to get in those reps. There were no real sanctioning body versus sanctioning body battle lines. We have those today. So I think that's also complicating things a bit, Will. If you could buy at least the first two tiers of the road to Indy vehicles and know that you could not only go to a lot of places with them, but there'd also be a market for them that folks could purchase and know, you know, go race this kind of anywhere you wanted and know that you're going to have some good competition with similar cars. You know, I think right now, the in so many ways, folks know that if you're going to do the road to Indy and you buy one of those cars, you're kind of in road to Indy or nothing. So, you know, not saying there's any blame here, just there's some very different dynamics from this 2000 late 2000 period that you mentioned. All right, penultimate question, my favorite word that makes me sound like me smart in the head. Coming back to a topic here that we've already addressed once or twice, but I figure throw this in towards the end because we'll just add the final little aspect to this. Ryan Ward says, Marshall, two weeks ago, two weeks to go to the open test at Coda, and still not a peep from Carlin on the driver lineup, not even a Max Chilton road and street confirmation to speak of. Hashtag me personally. I'm starting to think there was some fire to the smoke you heard about them trying to sell their equipment. What do you say now? Again, I'm a sucker for taking people at face value. So I'm going to believe Stephanie Carlin, uh, the awesome other half of the Carlin racing empire. I'm going to take her at her word that everything's good. I would say that the thing that was interesting to chart, and we'll see if it has ended up panning out, which I think I wrote in whatever silly season update a couple weeks ago, was the pretty awesome Mitch Davis, longtime crew chief, uh, manager type, uh, strategist who stepped in and started working with the team at Toronto last season uh, that Charlie Kimball knew well and worked with at Ganassi. And I don't remember the exact way it lined up, Ryan, but Mitch had, you know, had a positive change in financial fortunes and wanted to try and buy into Carlin. I don't know if it was try and buy outright or take an ownership stake. So one of two, one of three or four between Trevor, Stephanie, and Max's father, Graham Chili Chilton. That might be where the selling things, selling equipment angle came from. Hey, so that Davis guy, what's going on there? If that was just simply Mitch trying to buy in compared to, oh, the team's trying to sell all their stuff. Again, I don't have an answer to that. They're not talking and we'll find out. But what I would say is this, because I'm about to say it, and I'll use the hashtag, I have spoken since my wife and I just finished watching the uh, Mandalorian. Um, What does it say, Ryan, and dear IndyCar fans, when we get to... 7.32 p.m. on a Wednesday night, January 29th, 
and a two-car IndyCar team that started in 2018 and has had to rifle through a lot of drivers over the past two years, has not at this 7.32 p.m., uh, less 13 days away. Is it 13? No. Yeah, 13 days away from spring training has yet to say a peep about who is driving what, where, and when. Uh, coming off of a very tough 2019, a couple of cars failed to qualify for the Indy 500. Uh, the, call it signature driver, Max Chilton, whose father co-owns the team, primary financier. Max says, yeah, Oval's not. Uh, this is a lot of instability, instability, no stability. This is the kind of thing that has to worry you after two seasons. If that's happening in your second season, that must worry you. And if we've gotten to a point to where cars, you know, we're not too many hours away from it being down to 12 days to spring training. If we are facing this scenario, it worries me. And I would imagine it worries the fine, truly fine folks at Carlin uh, and their fans. If we are in a case where they are trying their best to embark upon a third season of IndyCar, and here we are with the first big day at school, 12, 13 days away, where everyone gets to see one another's new clothes and how much it grew since school went out and yet, right, everybody turns up see who's got what, who's different, how things have developed, and we're still waiting to see, it it concerns me because, you know, I'll be blunt. I love that team. They're great, great people. Man, just so much heart, so much spirit, a lot of talent. They've been through the wars already trying to, you know, be a very good team. have had to learn a lot on the engineering side. Uh, made mistakes on, you know, how they've done things at times, recovered from that. You know, they've come a long way in a short amount of time. They've had to withstand a lot of problems with, you know, again, turnover in the cockpit, funding shortfalls, uh, failures to qualify, so on and so forth. That, you know, this is something where I hope they can dig out of this but of all the indicators that lead me to feel like, yay, it's everything's getting better, man, knowing that we're 12, 13 days out from spring training and there's still no word, um, that is something that should concern everybody. All right, let's get to, let's get to our final question. Who does it go to? Well, naturally, Jordan Darwin. Thank you, Jordan, for always sending in a question or two. MP, I like the Robin Miller 2020 campaign t-shirt. If you had to make a 2020 presidential campaign t-shirt with any car drivers, who would you pick? President and vice president like Reagan and Bush in 1984. Need one lineup of current drivers and one of the greats who are still alive. I was trying to think of a way to include Penske, but I think we need him at 16th in Georgetown right now. Instead of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. 
oh man i feel bad because uh my brain just isn't firing enough to do jd's one on the monty python cast let me see if i can do this one jordan and i don't mean like this is truly tough i just mean that you know uh, i am woefully insufficient right now probably to uh to get this one right okay so we're talking one current driver one legendary driver so this would be interesting from a standpoint of age and politics mentioned this a few times on the podcast if you are a fan of fox news then and you don't want to miss a word that gets spoken at an indycar event on fox news all you need to do is go to the hospitality units of basically every team because although i don't know which party they are officially registered with in terms of what every single team owner in terms of their political alignments it wouldn't be crazy to suggest that largely wealthy older white men who have been very successful either in business or have been gifted a lot of money or enough money to start a business or do racing would probably fall in line with folks that meet that demographic politically. Again, that's not a judgment. That's just a not a surprise that the folks who have wealth want to protect it, want it to grow, would side with a president or political party that is all about that. Counter to that, it's probably also not a huge surprise that uh, as I come across many drivers, most of whom are scared to death to talk politics, uh, you've got a lot who would probably lean more on the Democratic side. I'm not necessarily saying super liberal, wishy-washy, granola-eaten, Birkenstock, flip-flop-wearing, peace-and-love-band-type liberal, but just, you know, um, a little less in that direction because their life experiences have been less in that direction. Oddly enough, I do know of some drivers who have gotten older, had success, earned pretty darn good money, and whatever free peace and love kind of thing about their life views and whatnot, younger years certainly changed to more of a man, get those taxes right, deregulate, and, uh, you know, make my money grow, Mr. President and Mr. Republican Party. Don't take it away. So that's where this gets a little interesting. So if we know that there's probably a, not necessarily a hundred percent, but you know, I'd say upper eighty percent chance, ninety percent chance that all team owners would go Republican. We couldn't then have a well. We could technically, I guess, but practically, we couldn't. Jordan then have a Democrat for a driver, and I know you said older legendary driver. I'm just saying, you know, we've got a lot of. A lot of those people are kind of involved on the team ownership side, right? From a Foyt to an Andretti 
to a Schmidt, uh, to a Shank, to a Ganassi, to a coin, <laughs> to a carpenter, to a Ray Hall, um, right? And I don't, I, you know, you guys know that I don't really follow all the social media of everybody regularly, but I'm sh- fairly sure, maybe not so much on Instagram or Twitter, but probably on Facebook, uh, you're going to find this older generation of team owners, many of them ex drivers and champions. Uh, you know, I have seen from time to time some pretty clear postings on the good old book faces that, you know, uh, Obama bad, Trump good, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi devil. So, again, not shocking, not a surprise. We're in a judgment free zone here. Do vote however you want, man. Uh, the world keeps on rolling. But I'll just say that if we're going to try and get this one, Jordan, probably going to have to go with a fully aligned champion, veteran, hero, and a driver, modern driver, that is Republican as well. Because we're probably going to, you know, I'm just looking at the list here. And while I'm sure I'm wrong in, in making some assumptions, I think like Elton Julian would be the only guy I could pretty much say among the team owners is going to vote Democrat. Um, so we're just going to say, all right, this is going to have to be matchy matchy with a veteran champion team owner, um, Republican. And I'm trying to think ideas, right? Penske's off. Penske's off, right? He's busy. As you mentioned, it's not going to be Foyt. Um, I don't think it's going to be Michael Andretti. Carlin's the other one who I would say, while not American and I don't believe able to vote, I would probably lean Democrat. Um, you know, Ganassi strikes me as someone who, I don't know if he has any interest in political anything, but not only is he extremely smart, he is very decisive. He is a clear thinker, has high expectations, as a history of winning and excellence. Uh, and he is, you know, no question uh, for the Republican way of life. I think we might have to go with Chip, with the kind of legendy driver veteran type. And the other one that I was thinking of was Ray Hall, and Bob certainly fits that as well. I just, I don't know. Uh, it's too much arguing, and that's that's not really Bob's thing. Chip, man, that guy will spend all day arguing and ripping you to shreds and winning the argument. So I I think we got Chip for sure. The driver side is interesting, though. Where do we go uh, to get a good match? And then maybe, Jordan, we're just going to close with who's who's what, right? Who's Prezodent? Who is VP? Uh boy which driver and i'm getting i get we should go american right since you kind of got to be american born to do that i guess that boy this might make it even harder who would be the good compliment ed carpenter right i mean that guy is freaking all american he can get that guy would i think certainly get some votes um i don't really know ed's political leaning but i'm making some assumptions here that he'd be a good fit on the republican side um, just seems to be a fairly conservative person. And so I think that might work. And in a good president, vice president dynamic, Chip, the 
kind of loud, bombastic, you know, not, I don't want to say in your face, but again, this is a guy who, whether it's boardroom racing type setting or Oval Office, I, I, I really think, and I'm glad you asked this, Jordan, this is totally harebrained, I'm sure, but I actually think Chip would be pretty darn good at doing this job, like, for real. And Ed, as his VP, right? Not the big talking guy, a little more stoic, a little more reserved. Um, there's some Trump, Trumpian, Pensian things I'm seeing here in a Ganassi Carpenter ticket. I'd vote for it. Absolutely. Uh, and, and again, I'm not blowing smoke here. I'd vote for it. Without a doubt. Uh, I think Chip would do a hell of a job. So, I don't know what that says about me. Maybe you agree. Maybe you think I've just reconfirmed for the 50th time. I'm a complete moron. I don't know. But that's what came to mind. And it's about the best I could do. <sighs> All right. It is time for me to say thank you and farewell great questions as always jd send that in in a couple weeks i'm hoping my brain will be functioning better and cooper tires thank you justice brothers thank you as well torontomotorsports.com you all rock and roll please for sure send in your uh, little direct massage to me our fine pal chris graham and we will get you hooked up. Send me that DM with your email address. And also thank you to Bell Racing Helmets USA. Look forward to speaking to you all next week. And we'll find out if, boy, it really would be great to go to that 49ers game to see my team lose, win, win. Although I think, yeah, I think they're going to lose to the Chiefs. And Yeah, it's, there's being a diehard fan, that's great. That means you always love them, but doesn't mean you lie to yourself. Uh, I'm going to be surprised gang if my team wins and i'll be really happy if they do but uh, i'm preparing myself that we might get mahomed on sunday all right rocky is asleep face down at the bar here and i'm done i'll talk to you next week with our weekend indycar listener q a